0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Moneymaker's Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I am Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me this week, as always, is Simon Elliott, head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. Last week, Simon, we spent some time talking about the rather remarkable gyrations in the market that we've seen, particularly around technology shares and indeed Scottish Mortgage, the largest investment trust in the whole investment trust sector, and one of the great success stories of last year. This week, it's been a similar story, but the direction of travel has been rather different, I think.
1: That's right, yes. It was a better week for investors in the investment companies sector. Uh, we'll end up about 3% or so, and that's ahead of the wider UK market. The FTSE All share is going to end up the week about 2.1% percent. We've also seen the sector average discount narrow. It started the week probably about five and a half percent and it ended end nearer to three percent. Though just to put some context on that, at the start of this year, it was probably nearer to about one, one and a half percent. So although the kind of headlines are good for investment companies, it's fair to say that markets do remain uh, jittery. And there's obviously a good reason for that in terms of the bond market volatility. Uh, and the impact that that's having on the technology sector and high growth stocks. Clearly, there's a view out there that uh, things such as Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill um, uh, is going to lead to higher inflation than expected. But what that means for the investment company sector, as you've alluded to, is quite a lot of intraday volatility, and it's probably best to look at Scottish Mortgage Investment Trusts. Again, it's been a real uh, roller coaster week, For the share price of that particular investment trust, it's probably had about a 20% swing this week in terms of intraday trading on Monday morning. um, It dipped as low as £9.50 a share, uh, and then at one stage it uh, bounced off at £11.86 before closing the week on £11.48p. So it's up, it's in positive territory for the week, up about 13%, which is obviously better than the 10% fall it saw in the previous week. There, as I said, still a lot of intraday volatility.
0: Indeed, and that's obviously uh, bouncing back after two very torrid weeks. I think it's fair to say. Have we seen a lot of trade in the in the shares? What's been really behind the headlines of those moves? So, who's been buying and who's been selling, and what do you think the outlook from here is?
1: Um, the answer is yes. There has been an awful lot of trade in the shares. And again, just to put uh, some numbers to that, on Monday, I think we saw shares uh, to the value of probably about 180, 190 million pounds traded in one day alone. So uh, the market makers in SMT, as its uh, ticker is known, was certainly kept busy that day. So in in terms of who's behind it, well, I suspect there are a number of people trading in this one. Uh, I mean, clearly it's a very large liquid company now. Um, I mean, by far the largest investment trust company uh, in the sector. Um, And it has a whole range of investors, um, including professional investors. So wealth managers have been on the register for a number of years. Retail investors who perhaps have invested more recently, um, but also there will be a number of institutional traders as well. So people talk about a lot about high-frequency traders, uh, so professional traders who look to take advantage of high-volatility stocks. And uh, certainly over the last few weeks, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust has fallen into that category.
0: So that's quite unusual for an investment trust of that size. We don't normally associate investment trusts with a lot of volatility of that kind, I think it's fair to say. So I guess that's partly the price they have of being so high profile. Everybody knows about them and uh, all the uh, bulletin boards and uh, platforms have been abuzz with people asking questions about Scottish mortgage and whether there's any reason for the fall in the share price that the company itself knows about. I mean, they haven't put out any any statement, I don't think, this week, the, uh, the Board of Scottish Mortgage, because these uh, gyrations are not uh, caused by them. It's They're caused by the market rather than by them. So they have been in the market and buying back shares. I think that is uh, fair to say, as they have done on a number of occasions uh, in the past. Uh, is that right?
1: That's absolutely correct. So in the first three days of this week, I think they bought... Uh, in aggregate, something like 3.6 million shares. So although Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust doesn't have any firmly stated discount policy or discount target, they have been active in the past in terms of their buybacks to ensure that that discount volatility uh, is minimised. Clearly, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust has issued a significant number of new shares at a premium to its NAV over the last few years. But equally, they've been very prepared to buy back those shares when they've gone to um, a relatively small discount, certainly in the range of four, five, six percent, and I think most people would agree that that is that is a good thing to just reduce that volatility, um, particularly for their long-term retail shareholders.
0: I mean, one of the explanations that I saw being touted around for the volatility was that uh, because Scottish Mortgage does have these unlisted shares in there, they're difficult to value, or at least they don't, they're not. Valued every day in the market themselves, do you think that was a factor, or is it more to do, just as you say, with all the traders and, the, if you like, the speculative money coming into the stock after such a such a large fall?
1: Um, yes, I know it's a good question. I mean, you know, could people be taking a view on their private company book, So, which is probably around about twenty percent or so of their portfolio, it's possible. But equally, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, high growth technology shares, about the strong run that those companies have had, particularly into the end of last year. And for some investors, particularly institutional investors, they might want to take a view on that. And one of the ways that they could do that maybe possibly taking uh, shorts out against Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust That would not be unheard of. We have seen that before, relatively fleeting. And equally, there would be those people who, frankly, have made a lot of money as you know long-term investors in this particular investment trust and might have decided just to take some money off the table um, that they thought that perhaps valuations got a little bit ahead of themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the vast majority of investors in Scottish Mortgage and indeed the investment team themselves will be taking a long-term view And taking the view that actually, despite the noise in the market over recent weeks, that the fundamentals of the companies that they're backing still remain very, very strong. You know, incredibly strong growth prospects over a long period. um, And they'll be looking through this.
0: There's certainly a paradox that uh, here's a company which explicitly talks about investing for the longer term. It's it's uh, going to hold its uh, the things it owns for long periods in most market conditions, and yet it's become this sort of speculative plaything against a, a back cloth of uh, quite a lot of volatility in uh, technology and NASDAQ and so on, as you've alluded to. So it's been a very interesting week for Scottish Mortgage. I guess the fundamental point here, though, is that nothing much has changed as far as we know in the portfolio of the investment trust itself, other than its recent decisions to reduce its holdings in uh, one or two of its more high-profile names like uh, Tesla and so on. So this really is a story about the market as much as a story about the trust itself, at least as far as we know at this point. Very interesting set of developments. You mentioned it also affected some of the other high-growth trusts out there in the market. We we've, we've talked about the Chinese investment trusts, and we talked about some of the other Bailey Gifford uh, trusts as well. Have they been similarly affected in terms of either volatility or sharp share price movements? I mean, in the technology
1: stocks, the, the Chinese stocks, investment companies, then there's certainly been quite a degree of share price volatility around those names uh, in recent weeks. Again, you, you've got to remember with Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust it is that much larger. So it has got that greater degree of gravity around it. And you obviously the trading volumes are much, much higher. Um, so if you do look at the Chinese names, for instance, they're still, uh, in terms of their ratings, holding up particularly well. So the JP Morgan China Growth and Income Fund, that's still on a, uh, a premium rating, 3 4%. The Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust on a 14% premium. And the Fidelity China Special Sits, not too far off NAD. So despite that share price volatility, those ratings are still holding up pretty well.
0: And I guess in terms of style effects in the market, we haven't talked much about the effect of commodities and so on, but we have seen quite a significant movement in oil prices and also in some of the energy trusts, not the renewable energy trusts so much, but things like the uh, BlackRock Energy and Resources Income, for example, they've been reflecting the fact that commodity prices have been rising quite strongly, all part of this uh, narrative of uh, higher growth coming around the world, which is obviously one of the things that's upset bond market investors or appears to have done. So we haven't talked about them, but uh, they've been some quite significant movements in those kind of uh, trusts, have they not, recently?
1: Yes, that's right. And not just in NAV terms, we've really seen them re-rated. So if you look at BlackRock World Mining, for instance, over the last year, their share prices has has more than doubled. But just over the last few months, they've moved into a premium rating. And in fact, they made an announcement not long ago. In that particular case, that they would look to get powers from shareholders to be able to issue shares at a premium from Treasury. They've been bought, they've been buying back shares over a number of years. They've built a number of shares up in Treasury, and they will look for permission to issue those out to the marketplace. But equally, the BlackRock Energy and Resources uh, Income Fund, that's seen its uh, discount tighten. So just to put some numbers on that, over the last 12 months, it's averaged an 11% discount. It currently finds itself on uh, nearer to a 2 or 3% discount. Um, so that reflects that one. And yes, as you say, there is quite a good story there in terms of the demand for commodities and the impact that it's having on pricing. uh, And that's really pushing those names forward.
0: Okay, so let's move on and talk about uh, our usual topic. I'll start off with uh, corporate activity. Not much, actually, to report on that front this week. But um, there is some news coming out of BlackRock North American Income, BRNA. And what's the story there, Simon? This
1: one actually um, came out on Friday last week, so actually when we were recording the, the preceding podcast. But basically, the board of this uh, investment trust company and BlackRock have decided to implement a review of the fund's investment policy and its objective. And this reflects the views of uh, several shareholders, and they're going to make an additional, a further announcement uh, once the outcome of the review has concluded. Now, as you will know from your experience as a non-executive director, reviews happen all the time. But the fact that they've come out and told the marketplace that they're looking to do this, I think reflects a number of things. Clearly, it's been a difficult period for a US equity income mandate. As we've discussed before, the US market has has been driven by a very narrow set of stocks of companies, and they invariably do not fit into a US equity income type mandate. So in the case of BlackRock, North American income, they have lagged Uh, the S&P 500, although only slightly behind their own benchmark, which is the Russell 1000 value index. The other aspect of this particular uh, investment trust is that it sells upside through call options in order to generate additional income. Um, So that means obviously when the market rises, uh, it tends to act as a bit of a headwind. But despite this, its dividend hasn't been covered for the last few years. So perhaps it was not one that most people were expecting necessarily, Uh, to see a review uh, announced, but the fact that the board have um, made this public announcement, it allows them to have very open discussions and have quite a wide-ranging review in terms of the future direction of this company. I think probably the last point to mention on this is that the shareholder base um, is predominantly in the hands of wealth managers. And just over the last few years, we have seen some of the, the larger wealth managers being more proactive in terms of their engagement with investment trust companies and their boards and making it clear where they were perhaps less happy with the future direction. Uh, And this is, of course, speculation, but one wonders uh, if some of those wealth managers have have made it clear that they weren't altogether happy with this particular one.
0: Just to follow up on that, I mean, do you think that might be because of the style, the investment style that the trust has been following? Or is it just the fact that Presumably, one of the reasons why this trust was set up was because the U.S. market has a very low yield. And if you're, it's very difficult to find significant yield in the, in the U.S. market. That presumably was the idea behind this particular launch, which took place in 2012. I think I'm right about that. Do you think that this could be another sign that we could be seeing another value manager taken out and shot, so to speak? It's
1: a good question. I mean, unsurprisingly, if you look at the portfolio, it's a it's a fangless portfolio. It, it won't own Tesla, Alphabet, Facebook, and etc. And all these companies that are really driven and uh, not just the US market but the global market higher over last year, and it will have a more natural kind of value approach, obviously, in its search for, for income. But as you say, that's what it was set up to do, and its yield on a historic basis is just above 4%, 4.2%, which as you know is a lot higher than you would get normally from the US stock market. So this is clearly speculation, but perhaps it is a case that uh, people have got a little bit fed up with with the investment approach. But essentially, it has delivered on what it was set up to do.
0: Yes, and I think it might be worth mentioning. I mean, the five-year track record, well, it has a, it has a slightly, nearly a 10-year track record, I guess now, but it actually hasn't been that bad. I mean, we have got used to talking about these very large numbers in terms of returns. Its uh, share price total return over the last five years has been... Pretty good, I would have thought, by kind of normal conventional standards, but uh, obviously not in relative terms. And
1: no, that's right. So, over the last five years, the NAV total return, um, they're up about 79%, which, as you say, is not a bad return at all. However, if you look at the SP 500, which is probably the index most people will uh, refer to in terms of US equities, that's up 121%. And again, you know, as mentioned, that's going to be driven by a very small handful of. High-growth, technology-oriented stocks.
0: Yes, it is. A, it is another reflection on this extraordinary period we've been living through. I think that we regard uh, that kind of performance as definitely subpar. Let's move on and talk about fundraising. Obviously, volatile markets in certain sectors, but the fundraising goes on in others where there's less volatility and indeed lots of demand. I wonder where we should start. Let's uh, start with Aberdeen Standard European Logistics Income bit of a mouthful, ASLI. What's their story? What are they looking to do? So they're looking
1: to raise additional capital. They're looking to issue about 18 and a half billion new shares, which is the total remaining authority that shareholders granted them back in the AGM last year. Um, Effectively, they're looking to use the proceeds to complete a recently constructed Polish warehouse, which has been valued at 28 million euros, and they will Uh, make this issuance through a book building process through uh, a number of investors. Um, It's going to close on the 12th of March. uh, And basically, the, the price of this will just be in excess of the latest NAV per share. So then those new shares will start trading on about the 16th of March or so.
0: Yes, I just noticed that's another one, which is going to be using this platform called Primary Brid to try and attract uh, interest from private investors. We've talked about that as a concept of how uh, companies might find it more useful or perhaps easier to raise money from private investors. Just mentioned that in passing. Interesting trend to watch uh, after that uh, review by Lord Hill last week, which had something to say about that. Uh, Let's move on to Chrysalis Investments. This one we've talked about as well a lot over the uh, last few weeks. Uh, what's going on there?
1: Yeah, and uh, you're absolutely right. And it's one that's actually performed very well over the last few years, really. And they've announced that they're looking to issue uh, some new shares. Initially, they're looking at about 117 million new shares at about 205p per share, although they've made it clear that the size of that issue can increase up to 146, uh, which means that they're looking to raise up to 300 million pounds. Uh, they've got an active pipeline of about a billion pounds or so, Uh, and they've provided a little bit of detail about that. There are apparently 10 companies uh, in a range of sectors, including renewable energy, fintech and e-commerce. And actually, they're looking to make some follow-on investments in their portfolio as well, £250 million of follow-on investments. Now, the price of 205p actually reflects the NAV adjusted for a couple of their key holdings. So Klarna, that's been in the media quite a lot, announced a fundraising recently and the impact of that on Chrysalis Investments meant about a 32p uplift to the NAV, so it's probably about 18% or so, so a really strong uplift as a result of that fundraising. And in fact, Klana now is the highest valued private fintech company in Europe, worth at $10.7 billion And there's also more good news in that Starling Bank, another holding in Chrysalis Investments portfolio, that also had a fundraising round and that had a positive impact of about 6p on this investment company's NAV. So again, that's one of the the, the startup challenger banks that appears to be going well. But the placing is closing on the 25th of March and the new shares will start trading on the 30th of March.
0: This is another one that's actually using primary bid as well to uh, try and uh, offer the same placing terms to private investors. If I was in the prediction business, I would be saying I suggest this one would probably go quite well because it's in a very uh, popular area and it's got quite a lot of interesting things, as you say, like Starling Bank and Klarna, which is, I think, an online shopping thing. I don't think I've ever used it myself, but uh, that's not totally surprising. Uh, So let's move on and talk about digital nine infrastructure. Now, we mentioned them a few weeks back. What have they come out and said uh, in the last few days? Yeah, that's right. they provided a few more
1: details. So just to remind people, they're looking to come to the market. So they're looking to raise £400 million through their IPO, uh, and they will look to invest in a range of digital infrastructure assets, which include subsea fibre, data centres, terrestrial fibre, tower infrastructure, and small cell networks. Um, they've provided a few more details. They've got one particular investment lined up, Aquacoms, which is a platform-owning and operating transatlantic subsea fibre systems. But they're looking to target a 10% per annum net total accounting return. And unsurprisingly, the dividend is going to be a key part of that, the initial 6p dividend target. The IPO closes on the 25th of March, um, but after the success of Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, which raised £370 for its IPO, obviously they will be, hopefully it goes well.
0: Indeed. We mentioned last time they were talking about their portfolio, including future-proof, non-legacy, scalable platforms, which uh, I spent a lot of time trying to work out what that actually means, if anything. And I think it uh, it comes down to saying it's something new anyway. But uh, let's move on and talk about uh, LXI REIT, a property company. And uh, they've been looking to raise money. We knew that. Uh, what have they had to say this week?
1: Yeah, this has gone well for LXI REIT. Um, they were looking to raise about £75 million and actually the size of the issue was increased to £125 million. That was uh, 100 million or so shares issued at 124.5p per new share and that represents the first fundraising they've done since June 2019, when the world was a different place. They raised about £200 million at that stage. So that's been a positive development for them. Um, those new shares start trading on the 15th of March. And again, just to remind people, this particular UK commercial property fund is differentiated by um, the fact that it's long-let and index-linked UK property assets.
0: Okay, and that one's one of the few property companies that have been trading at a premium. We talked about that. Is there any change in the rating or has the share price moved at all recently? Presumably not by much if this funding has been going on.
1: That's right. So, unsurprisingly, the share price is around about the the level at which they raised new shares. But yeah, it's trading on a a small premium, about 3% premium to to NAV. And as you say, that compares with an average discount of probably about
0: 17% or so in the UK
1: commercial property sector.
0: Okay, so let's move on in this sort of area, a specialist part of this area, which is Tritax Eurobox, eBox, which is like a uh, sister company to um, their UK investment trust. What's the story there? They've been looking to raise money as well and have they how did they get on?
1: They got on very well. Yeah, again uh, an instance where the board had to increase the the target size of the issuance as a result of strong investor demand. I think they were looking to raise about 200 million euros. Uh, in the end that was increased to 230 million uh, euros which equates to about 198 million sterling. So 193 million new shares issued at about 103p. And they have started trading uh, on Wednesday uh, of the week, just gone. So um, despite the increased size of the issue, applications exceeded the total number of shares to be issued. And therefore, they had to uh, go for a scaling back exercise.
0: How does that normally work, a scaling back exercise? Obviously, it means that uh, there's more money chasing the number of shares on offer. Is it always done on a proportionate basis or is it, uh, you know, the largest uh, applications do better? What, how does that normally work?
1: It's more an art than a science, to be honest. Um, I mean, invariably, it's in the hands of the broker who's involved. There will be some kind of pro element to it, but it might be, just to kind of balance numbers up, there might be some that do slightly better than others, but ultimately if people have been happy to get involved in a new issue, that you want to kind of do right by them, look after them.
0: You don't want to discourage them, exactly, by rejecting them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to talk about uh, results. And the first one we might talk about actually is the sister trust of Tritax Eurobox, uh, which is called Tritax Big Box, REIT, B-B-O-X. They've had the annual results out for last year. They're in the same sort of business, obviously. And how did they do?
1: yeah a good set of results for tritax big box uh, these were the annual results to the 31st of december 2020 basically uh, their epre nta uh, share was up about 15 16% in that year and they generated a total return of 20% the portfolio value increased by 12% uh, so it was all positive Uh, in addition to which the the fund has near-term development um, pipeline of about 10 million square feet across 12 sites, which sounds like quite a lot to me, uh, of which 74% had planning consent at the year end. Uh, Perhaps it's not a great surprise given the area of the market that they find themselves that 99.4% of the 2020 rent was actually collected last year, Uh, with all arrears expected to be received this year. Though it's worth noting, actually, with this one, um, despite the fact that the earnings per share was actually up about 8% or so in the year, that the the dividend level was down slightly. Um, It totaled uh, 6.4p, so it's about 7% down on the year. And that's a reflection of the fact that In the first three quarters of last year, the board reduced it down a little bit. And that was obviously in light of the pandemic and the uncertainty they had at that time. But the final uh, dividend in respect of last year, so Q4 dividend, um, has actually gone back in line with the pre-COVID rate. And uh, the intention, I think, is to kind of build that dividend up as they move forward.
0: What is the yield on that uh, particular trust? And and how does that compare to the yield on the Eurobox uh, trust?
1: Yeah, so the yield on TriTax Big Box on a historic basis is 3.5% at the moment, uh, which, bizarrely enough, is actually exactly the same for TriTax Eurobox uh, at present. So uh, not an awful lot between them.
0: Let's move on and talk about some more results then. Let's start off with uh, EP Global Opportunities Trust, EPG. Mm -hmm. They've had some annual results and uh, tell us about them. They're managed by Edinburgh Partners, hence the EP which is a uh, boutique Scottish investment uh, management company, uh, now part of Franklin Templeton Group.
1: That's right. So EP Global Opportunities had its annual results out for the 12 months to the end of December. A tough period, really, for EPG. Its NAV total return was negative for the year. It was down about 1%. And in share price terms, they were down about 6% as their discount widened from about 3% to 8%. Uh, In addition to that, the revenue per share was down 39%, so they had 4.9p per share. Um, But they're actually looking to have a full-year ordinary dividend of 6p per share, and that's uh, in line with the previous year uh, using revenue reserves. So really the story here, um, we talked about the, the difference between growth and value, Uh, And this is certainly in the value camp. Dr. Sandy Nern, the manager of this since its launch, has a a very um, well-considered value approach. And obviously, that's been quite a tough one over a number of years. In fact, the chairman noted in the the chairman's report that the board is concerned about the performance of the portfolio, although uh, acknowledged that the value style was a headwind. Um, The manager is also quite cautious at the moment. So at the end of the year, 13% of the assets of this fund were actually in cash, uh, and 9% were in US Treasury inflation protected bonds. So tips, basically, as they're known. And the portfolio is very different to that you'd see for most global investment trusts. So the US weighting is only about 4% or so at the moment, with quite a skew to Europe, 23%, Japan, 22%. Uh, And the UK and Asia, 13 and 15 percent, respectively.
0: Yes, I should uh, declare a mild interest in this particular trust. Some listeners may already know this, but Sandy Nan and I wrote a book together a few years ago about the investment methods of John Templeton. Uh, Sandy Nan started his career working for Sir John Templeton as he became, and has been very much influenced by his style over the years. And one of the things which uh, John Templeton did as we went back and looked at his performance over a long period. His cumulative outperformance, which is significant over his long career as an investment manager, almost all came during bear markets. Uh, like many good investors, his uh, outperformance was entirely due to his ability to dodge bullets during bear markets. And uh, Sandy Nell, I know, is in the similar sort of camp. And that, I think, explains why there is a significant cash and tips holdings in the trust. And why also, why this particular trust, in any event, does not have a uh, a benchmark, which is an, a global equity benchmark, it actually uh, specifically allows for the possibility of holding cash, which is what John Templeton did coming up to periods when he expected he couldn't find enough cheap stocks to buy. So I think that's probably Sandy Nan's view. He's very concerned about the high level of valuations in markets and by implication must be expecting some kind of setback in due course. So I think that explains to a certain extent why his portfolio is so different, as you pointed out, to everybody else's is in that sector. So there's an interesting story developing there, though. Let's move on and talk about um, F&C, the oldest investment trust in the UK. It's been going since 1868. We talked about Alliance Trust, which started the same year last week. And uh, this week, we've got their results. And how have they performed?
1: Yes, broadly in line, basically, uh, in NAV terms, at least. So this is the annual results for the year to the 31st of December. NAV total return, they were up 12.3%, and that compared with 12.4% for the FTSE All World Index. Not quite so good in share price terms. Um, they were up 46 and that's a reflection of the fact they moved from a, a premium of about 1.5% out to about 5% discount in the year. But uh, in terms of the parts of the portfolio that performed well, private equity had a good year, whereas what they call global strategies uh, underperformed a little bit, as did their emerging market experience. But it's an interesting update uh, from Paul Niven of BMO. He's been responsible for this uh, investment trust for a period of time, uh, and he kind of made the point that actually they've leveled up between the, the growth and value bias, obviously, Um, seeing some kind of rotation down the track. It's also worth noting that uh, the dividend for F&C was increased. It was up about 4% year on year to 12.1p. And that represented the 50th annual uh, increase. Um, And the other thing is that they're making quite a big point of the ESG as part of the investment process. And in fact, the board have made a, a commitment to transition the portfolio to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 at the latest.
0: Okay, well, that's very interesting the way they're approaching that. Um, I mean, FNC and the Alliance Trust used to be the two largest uh, conventional equity trusts or broad market trusts in the investment trust universe, long before Scottish Mortgage came along and overtook them. But how have they been performing relative to their payer group? And is uh, which of them has got the bragging rights at the moment?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Probably Alliance Trust, FNC, and we're, I think we're going to go and come on to talk about uh, Witten. Um, these are all very long standing uh, investment trusts. In the case of F&C, over the last five years, they're up 96% on an NAV total return basis. Uh, and uh, according to the numbers I have in front of me, Alliance Trust are just ahead over that period, up 97% over the same time, uh, whereas Witten, a, a little bit behind uh, on 75%. And we can talk about the reasons why that might be the case
0: shortly. Okay, well, let's go on to talk about Witten. They also had their annual results out, so uh, directly comparable period, though I see they have slightly different benchmarks. How did they get on in 2020?
1: They had a tough year, basically. So, again, it's exactly the same period. Uh, the year to the 31st of December, their NEV total return was up about 4.2%, and that compared with 9.5% for their benchmark. And in share price terms, uh, the total return was up 2.7%. But really, it's uh, to use a football cliche, it was a game of two halves. They they got hit pretty badly in the sell-off about this time last year. And in fact, in the second half of the year, they outperformed quite significantly. So they were up 22% in that second half of the year against 12% for their benchmark. And that followed portfolio restructuring. So in their terminology, it's worth saying that they're a multi-manager investment trust. And they terminated, their terminology, four of their 10 managers uh, during that period, which sounds a bit draconian. But it obviously did the job in as much as performance bounced back. And actually, four of the six principal managers did actually outperform during the year, as did the direct portfolio. So Andrew Bell and James Hart, the chief executive and I think the chief investment officer, I think is James's title. uh, They're responsible for the direct portfolio, uh, which consists of a number of investment trusts Uh, and that uh, did very well last year. Um, Also on the dividend front, they actually increased the dividend, uh, just short of 2% to 5.45p, although that was uncovered. Revenue earnings were equivalent to 3.1p, so they used revenue reserves in order to make that uh, happen.
0: So we can, as you said, compare all three of them, I guess. We mentioned Alliance Trust, obviously, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, So we've got F&C, Witten and Alliance. I guess they would regard themselves as in the same Competitive group, if you like, in the same peer group, and you've mentioned the five-year performance. How are the ratings of these uh, three trusts? How do they compare? Is one of them significantly different from the others? Uh,
1: no, is the answer. I mean, Alliance Trust probably on about a seven percent discount or so, somewhere between seven and eight. Witten probably a little bit tighter, between six and seven, and uh, F and C probably around about seven percent. So all much of a muchness. Um, And all of them have over the years pursued quite significant buyback programmes as well, which obviously benefits ongoing shareholders in terms of the uh, incremental uplifts to NAVs. But I think they are worth comparing with each other because they are trying to do something quite different from um, some of the more growth orientated uh, investment trusts. And obviously, we talked quite a bit about Scottish Mortgage already, but in all three of these cases... They're trying to be all-weather global equity portfolios. So they're really trying to get a balanced approach, so not slanted towards growth or not slanted to value, as EP Global Opportunities certainly is. So, in other words, trying to generate alpha in the parlance of investment management in different market conditions.
0: And is it true to say, I mean, they all have quite significant retail investor followings. F&C and Alliance used to have uh, significant uh, numbers of private investors on their share registers and used to run saving schemes and so on. But are they also an uh, uh, institutional stock these days?
1: I think if you look at the shareholder register of all three of those investment trust companies, they will be dominated by retail investors, invariably using the platforms such as AJ Bell, Interactive Investor and, and Hargreaves Lansdowne. You're right that the savings schemes work very large parts of their register and the, you know, they've all changed and moved around a little bit over the years. But it is a predominantly retail owned stock. Uh, the wealth managers will certainly own them as well. But it, it would be, I can't think of any obvious institutional investors on those registers. The only exception to that would be those index trackers and, and, and people like that who hold it uh, for the reasons that they're all constituents of the, of the FTSE All Share.
0: So, also in the global sector is JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, JGGI, at least that's one of the tickers. Uh, they've only had some interim results they put out, so not directly comparable, but uh, how have they performed?
1: They performed quite well actually. So they had interim results for the six months to the end of December. NAV total return in that time was up about 15% or so, and that compared to 12% for the MSCI, All Country World Index. In share price terms, it was even stronger, up 17%. And really it was driven by stock selection, as you would expect. So just to remind people, uh, this is kind of JP Morgan's best ideas in terms of global equities. And that's what's driven the pawns in this particular period. It actually sits in the global equity income subsector, and it moved there a number of years ago. And that's a reflection of the fact that 4% of the NAV at the end of June, which is it's the end of its full financial year, is paid out to investors on a quarterly basis over the four quarters thereafter. Interesting comments from the investment management team. They've tilted the portfolio to industrial and consumer cyclical, and they've been adding exposure to financials. So I think it's this idea of how people are moving away from growth and trying to rebalance their portfolios, particularly after what we saw last year.
0: Yes, that's been quite a consensus uh, trade. And that's obviously explained some of the ways that different styles have performed in the last few months, particularly since the vaccine breakthroughs were announced. So, they're in the global uh, equity income sector formally, but how does their rating uh, compare? Are they more highly rated or less highly rated than the FNC, Witten, and Alliance that we talked about?
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. They've traded on a, a premium now for quite some time and, and really benefited from a re rating after the board of that investment trust company made the decision to adopt an enhanced dividend policy, i.e., this idea of paying um, some of your dividend out of realise profits. So they're trading on a 1% premium. They've issued shares over the last few years and over the last 12 months, in fact, they've averaged about a 1% premium. But that's in line with that global equity income peer group. Not every single investment trust in that subsector is trading on a a premium, uh, but you've got names such as uh, Murray International uh, and Scottish American, the Bailey Gifford Fund, uh, and even Security Trust of Scotland. They're all trading on premiums around NAV.
0: One other thing that I noticed in uh, at least a couple of these announcements is the the fact that a couple of these trusts have been increasing their gearing. So they're obviously not in the Sandy Nairn school of thinking that the markets are richly valued. They're actually hoping to benefit from the so-called reflation trade, which has been the dominant theme of the last few weeks. We've seen uh, that reflected. Is there anything more general one can say about levels of gearing at the moment, Simon, would you say? I mean, just sort of looking back over some recent results, do we see that a lot of trusts have been increasing their gearing?
1: Uh, yes, there certainly have been decreasing the gearing. I think it's a fair comment. I mean, what Sandy Nairn's doing with EP Global Ops, I mean, it does stand out from, from the pack at the moment. I think most people seem to be quite happy to uh, either increase their gearing or maintain it at the, uh, the existing levels. I mean, there has been some commentary around overextended valuations, but I think, the, the, as you say, the consensus is that it's that's focused on a particularly small subset of the wider market, Uh, and that there are opportunities to go for. So this idea that valuations in general amongst equities are high, uh, I don't think that would be the consensus at all. I think it's very much seen as that actually there's a lot of interesting opportunities overall.
0: Yeah, so the general picture coming out of, uh, for example, the PMI surveys, which people follow quite closely as indicators of of how fast the economy is recovering from the, the virus. We've got the Biden stimulus package, as you say, We've got rising commodity prices and indeed rising bond yields, all of which appear to be suggesting that there is going to be a period of relatively strong economic growth coming, and that should benefit corporate earnings. And therefore, that should justify uh, maintaining a, a positive stance going into this year. Well, we'll be to see who's right about that. Let's move on to the UK. We've got Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income Trust, ASCI. What's the story there?
1: So they reported annual results for the end of December 2020. In that time, their NAV total return uh, was down about 4% or so, and that was broadly in line with their benchmark. In share price terms, uh, they were down about 5% or so as the discount widened uh, a little bit. As the name would suggest, the dividend is an important part of this story. And there's a slightly unusual one there. So in, in revenue per share terms, uh, they were down, as you might expect last year, from about 10p uh, down to 5.6p. But in terms of the dividend that the board decided to pay back to shareholders, they reduced it from 8.25p in 2019 to 8.24p. In other words, a cut, a dividend cut of 0.01, which is unusual. I think it's fair to say I'm not entirely sure of the rationale for that. I think obviously a number of investment trusts have been hit by lower revenue per share last year for obvious reasons but most have taken the opinion or taken the move to actually maintain their dividend levels. Um, so that was a slightly unusual outcome. But uh, in terms of the, the performance here, it's Abby Glennie and uh, Amanda Yem, who are colleagues of Harry Nimmo at Aberdeen Standard Investments. They have a kind of quality and sustainable growth bias. Uh, so there will be some overlap with the Standard Life UK Smaller Companies Fund. But it's interesting, actually, in, in terms of the commentary that they provided, What happened last year, they made the point that actually most of the holdings in the portfolio did pay dividends last year. Um, It's just that they were at uh, lower levels, but they recognise that it will probably take several years to rebuild that revenue per share up to 2019 levels.
0: Okay, so let's move on now to some overseas trusts. Uh, Let's start off with Ashoka India Equity. That's one of a number of specialist Indian investment trusts, AIE, and they've had some interim results. They did
1: indeed, they had interim results for the six months to the end of December. Uh, in that time, their NEV total return was up about 29%, and that compared with 27% for their benchmark. In share price terms, uh, it was even stronger, actually up 39%, as the rating moved from a 5% discount to a 2% premium. So, yes, it's a, as you say, a specialist play, very much based on fundamental analysis of Indian equities. Uh, and looking at companies with growth prospects. And obviously, uh, that served them well in that particular period.
0: So, Ashoka India Equity, they would be in the same peer group. They're sort of, if you like, competing against the Aberdeen and JP Morgan Trusts, which are Specialist Indians. How do they stack up in uh, in that comparison?
1: Yeah, I mean, their track record is not as long. Uh, They came to the the market in, in relatively recent times. But certainly over the last year or so, uh, Ashoka is up 39% in NAV total return terms, uh, and that's ahead of the JP Morgan Fund, which is up 23%, and ahead of the Aberdeen New India Fund, which is up 31%. Um, but there is another fund actually out there which specialise in mid and small cap Indian equities, and it's called the India Capital Growth Fund, and that's up 50% over the last 12 months. So that one's top of the pops at the moment. Uh,
0: but I think the Ashoka Trust trades at a premium, does it? Or around a premium anyway, whereas the others are on discounts, I think.
1: That's right. Yeah. So the, the others are on double digit discounts, probably 11%, 12 13%. Uh, but Ashoka's on a, a 1% premium. But it's worth uh, remembering on that, that it has an annual redemption facility. So shareholders can uh, get out around NAV once a year. And in fact, they have been issuing shares as well. So they issued uh, just short of 2 million shares in that six month period uh, that they've just reported on.
0: So that particular approach, that strategy uh, has been working well for them, it would appear. Let's move on from a specialist emerging market country to the global emerging market sector. And we're going to talk about Scott Gems, S-G-E-M, who've had some results for the year, I think.
1: That's right. They had the results for the 12 months to the end of December. A bit of a tough period for them. Their NAV was down about 1% in that time. And that compares with a rise of about 8.5% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Small Cap Index. Although the MSCI Emerging Markets X asia Index uh, that fell 15%. So in terms of Scott Gems, their share price was actually in positive territory. It was up 2% for the period. And that's a reflection of the fact that the discount narrowed from 18% to 16%. But the headwind they faced was being underweight. China, South Korea, and Taiwan, they were the key detractors from relative performance over the period. But yes, I mean, it's it's worth noting with this one. It is a kind of more specialist play um, it's a very concentrated portfolio, probably about 35 holdings or so. It is focused on small cap companies, so those with uh, market caps of $2.5 billion or less. And it has quite big weightings to India, South Africa, Mexico. And as I mentioned, it's not really playing in, in China, South Korea and Taiwan, which have been the go-to markets over the last year.
0: Yes, I think what you said about the index there, uh, the X asia index, is a useful reminder that uh, the best performing part of the emerging markets has been in the Far East in Asia for quite a long time. Let's move on and talk about European Assets Trust, EAT, which has had some results for the year.
1: They had their results out for the 12 months to the end of December uh, and a decent set of results. The NAV total return was up 22%, that compared with a 19% return for their benchmark, in Share price terms they're up about 17% as the discount widened out a little bit during the year. The dividends are quite a key part of this story. So, um, this has been a long standing arrangement whereby 6% of the NAV at the end of each year is paid out as a dividend, uh, and so an 8p dividend has been declared for 2021 and that represents a 14% increase on the 7 spot 02p dividend paid. In respect of 2020 but they've said revenue reserves may be utilized for that but yes it's an interesting portfolio sam Kosh of bmo is responsible for this one uh, and it has a bias to mid and small caps as well
0: yes this one used to be an fnc europe trust back in the day before the fnc got taken over by uh, bmo the uh, canadian company uh, not to be confused with european opportunities trust which is a, a very different animal Okay, so let's move on and now talk finally about Jupiter US smaller companies in terms of uh, overseas trusts. They've had some interim results. We know that there's a manager change coming there. What do the results tell us?
1: So they had their interim results out to the end of December. uh, And in that time, their NAV total return was in positive territory, up 18%, which sounds good. But actually, it was behind the index, the Russell 2000 index, which was up 25%. So underperformance has been attributed to a conservative style, lagging a rapid market rise. They also had a significant hit to their largest holding, Palomar Holdings, due to a profit taking. And the manager said, well, there's a lack of exposure to COVID losers, which sounds like something that Donald Trump might talk about. But these were companies that rallied strongly in November. But you're right, there is going to be a changing of the guard with this one. The um, incumbent manager, long standing manager Robert Siddles, is actually uh, retiring very shortly. And Brown Advisory have been announced. In fact, they were announced at the end of last year as the new investment manager uh, following that retirement. And that appointment is expected to become effective on or before the 1st of April.
0: Okay, so let's move on now to the specialist uh, alternative assets funds, and let's talk about Foresight Solar Fund. FSFL is the ticker, and it uh, does what it says on the tin. They've had some annual results out, and uh, how are they done?
1: Yep, they had their annual results out to the end of December. Uh, their NAV was down last year, actually, from about 103 spot 8p. It fell to 95.8p, uh, though it was up a little bit uh, in the final quarter of the year. So the story here is that um, there have been lower power price forecasts, which have had an impact on the NAV, despite the fact uh, this was partially offset by a reduction in the discount rate on the UK portfolio. Better news for shareholders is that the dividend 6.91p was actually in line with the target uh, and the 2021 target has actually been increased by 1% to 6.98p. Cash dividend cover was 1.11 times covered during that time. Um, At about 71% of portfolio revenues are fixed for 2021. But in terms of what happened last year, the generation uh, of power was actually 8% or so above budget as a result of higher irradiation and also the debt levels as well. It's always worth just keeping an eye on the debt levels that these type of funds have in the structure. Uh, Gearing's increased from 41% to 45% uh, last
0: year. So how does that compare to uh, the other solar funds? Obviously, there aren't that many of them. There's the Bluefield Solar Fund and a recent relative newcomer, U.S. Solar Fund. How do they compare in terms of rating and uh, and indeed the all-important yield?
1: Yeah, so um, the rating on Foresight Solar, they're trading probably on about a 6% premium or so, and they have a yield of 6.9%, which is a pretty decent yield. In comparison, Bluefield Solar, that's on a higher premium, probably on about a 16% premium, but their yield is actually lower, 5.9% on a historic basis. Uh, The US solar fund is um, the the kind of upstart, the newcomer. They're trading on about a 9% premium at the moment, uh, and they're still building up their their dividend history. So it's not really uh, strictly comparable at the moment. And of course, then there's next energy solar. That's only on about a 2% premium or so at the moment, but their yield is uh, equivalent to foresight, so 6.9p.
0: So, as we've noted before the the yields are significant but the in terms of the ratings they're not as large as they are on some of the other renewable energy trusts, quite a few of which have been uh, raising money in in the last few weeks uh, Why is that do you think what what's the difference between the solar funds and the and the other general renewable and specialist ones the wind ones the energy efficiency storage and so on
1: yeah no it's an interesting question i mean i I think the point I would make is that we have seen some of the ratings fall off a little bit over the last few weeks in general uh, on some of the renewable energy infrastructure funds. So at the moment, they're probably on about an 8 9%. But within that, if you look at Greencoat UK Wind, for instance, that's probably on about a 4% premium or so at the moment. Now, they've obviously raised some money, so um, you know there's more paper out there in the marketplace. But one does wonder a little bit why those ratings might have softened overall. I mean, essentially, the yields are still... Uh, very attractive in a low interest rate environment. Uh, And clearly, they tick all the ESG boxes that people seem to be increasingly focused on. And one does wonder whether there is an element of uh, the bond proxies being hit uh, in this environment. There was a lot of talk uh, a number of years ago, how these things were being regarded rightly or wrongly as bond proxies. Uh, And we have seen some of these premium ratings just uh, disappear a little bit.
0: Okay, so essentially they are now almost, well, in those cases at the moment, they are making themselves available as yield offerings, Uh, but it may be that the yield is just about all you get at the moment. Uh, That suggests that would happen if the bond yields continue to rise and there's this pressure on uh, on the ratings. You may not actually get quite as much uh, capital uplift as you would have done before, but again, it might be an opportunity to have a more attractive entry point into these things if income is what you're looking for. We don't make recommendations on this programme, but do you think that's possible once this fundraising cycle has gone through? Do you think that we're actually going to find people coming back into these things again?
1: I think what I would say is that as an asset class, it's a very interesting area, and it's an area that doesn't look like losing any momentum anytime soon. There's clearly a huge amount of demand for renewable energy infrastructure type plays, and there's a limited amount of supply. So I think while those conditions exist, the following winds for the asset class remain very strong.
0: Indeed. Okay, well, that is uh, pretty much all we have time for this week, apart from one little footnote, I think, which we have to mention just as a sense of continuity. We have to mention that uh, perhaps uh, no doubt in response to what we were saying a week or two ago, probably, that the Hypnosis Songs Fund, our friends at Song, the music royalty company, now with competitors in the shape of the Round Hill Fund, they are holding a online workshop, which will uh, shed a bit more light, perhaps, on the way they calculate their returns and how they go about choosing their investments. Is, is that right?
1: That's absolutely right, yes. Uh, discussion of alternative performance measures, as well as an insight into their song management and revenue maximisation strategy. Tickets are selling fast, apparently. I, I'm sure if you look on their website, you can find the registration details.
0: Indeed. And obviously, uh, there has been some pressure, as we said, for them to, uh, to say a bit more about the numbers that underlie their business proposition in the face of competition for funding. Uh, and that will take place, I think, uh, next week. So uh, we can't, I suppose, pass this particular week without noting that it's the one-year anniversary of the, uh, not of this podcast, that comes shortly, but uh, of the uh, pandemic and the uh, the low point in the market. It's been quite an extraordinary few months. And uh, let's hope that the news from a year from now is just as uh, much about recovery as it has been over the last 12 months, which has been, certainly one of the more uh, dramatic years we've had in terms of uh, market behavior and indeed of performance from investment trusts. So we look forward to talking about that as we go forward. Thank you, Simon. Thank you.
1: This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust Podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website www.money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates, and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.